Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Be the wind be always at your back. May you find joy Till I see you And welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Till I See You Again by Weston Skaggs from Creston, Ohio. Weston is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. Now let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, did you ever have a favorite old-time mystery writer? You know, like uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or maybe Agatha Christie or maybe even a modern-day one like Dan Brown? Oh, yeah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes can't get better than that. But I will say one thing. The old mystery books have over true crime is they all get solved, don't they? Oh, yeah. I can't imagine Sherlock Holmes being stumped in the final hour. Well, tonight I have a case that reminds me more than any case I've ever researched of an old Sherlock Holmes story, except this one would have sent him away scratching his head. It was the 1895 murder of Olive Peeney. She lived and died in the Wood County village of Tentogany. And the local paper, the Daily Sentinel, wrote about the crime, the investigation, several arrests, and a trial each and every day as if sharing a new chapter in a serial. I mean, yeah, lots of crime, get lots of coverage, but I truly don't think I've ever seen coverage quite like this, especially for 1895. It was so thorough and yet non-sensational. You can flip the pages of the paper and consume the facts and get the feeling that the ending is being left up to you to decide. And yet, this is a story without an ending, because in spite of all the attention this crime attracted... 126 years later, we still don't know who killed Olive. We don't even know the motive for her killing or why she was even in the unexpected place where she was slain. This is a classic whodunit.
1895, Olive Peony, they called her Ollie, was 44 years old. As a young woman, she had been married to a man named Burns, and they had a child together, but I couldn't find a report about what happened to her first husband or child. She was still in her 20s when she remarried to the man whose name she carried, Peter Peony. Now, Peter was 52, and the couple had been together for 20 years. They had no children together. Before moving to Wood County, where the county seat is Bowling Green, Ollie and Pete had been living in Blissfield, Michigan. When they settled down into Togany, 15 years before our story takes place, Ollie's dad wasn't far away. Henry Burnthistle lived just a few miles down the road in another Wood County village called Haskins. Peter had started out as a farmer, but became a barber and was well known in town. At first, he operated a shop across the street from the train depot, but Peter had to cut back because of health problems. He maintained a small barber room in his home and still handled the needs of a handful of regular customers who came over for a shave and a haircut. Pete wasn't the only one with health problems. Ollie suffered a heart condition, and neighbors were well aware of what they called her spells and how often she had to walk to the doctor's office, both day and night, seeking treatment or relief. The other couple that figures prominently in this story are Dr. Adam and Catherine Edmund. The Edmonds and the Peenies had been good friends the past 10 years, and their lives were intertwined in various ways. Dr. Edmund was the Peenies' family physician, and for a time, Ollie had worked in his office as a sort of nurse. Ollie had also attended Mrs. Edmund on occasion when she was sick. Pete went to Dr. Edmund for business advice, and he was also Dr. Edmund's barber. The doctor stopped by the house two or three times a week for a shave or a trim. Sometimes he came during the day, but often he stopped by late at night after the drugstore had closed. They were so close, on occasion, Dr. Edmund would even rouse Pete from his bed for a late night shave, since often that was the only hour he had available. Dr. Edmund had a thick German accent, but he was born in Philadelphia. When he was still an infant, his parents moved to Germany. He was raised and studied medicine there, then traveled to several countries working as an assistant surgeon before ending up in San Francisco and then Chicago. By 1876, he was in Cincinnati, where he continued studying advanced medicine at a local college, and a year after that, ended up in Tontogany. His new wife, Catherine, was a native of that area, and nine years his senior. Dr. Edmund was not only a town physician, he was also the village pharmacist. His office, his drugstore, and his home were all on the same allotment at the corner of Washington and Broad Street near the center of town. Dr. Edmund was also Tatagany's mayor. On the night of Friday, March 1, just before 10 p.m., Dr. Edmund was counting the cash in his drugstore to end the business day when he heard a gunshot. It sounded close, maybe even behind his building. 
Dr. Edmund was startled. He quickly wound things up, left his shop, and locked the door, then hurried home. His wife had retired for the night, but they had a servant girl, Nellie Hartsing, and she was still up. Had she heard that shot, he asked her. Yes, she certainly did, she said. Dr. Edmund looked outside, and that's when he noticed a small fire near the rear of his building on steps that led to a back entrance. He wanted to go, but he also remembered that gunshot and was half afraid. By now, his wife Catherine was also awake. She had seen the fire, too. She yelled fire out the window. The nearest neighbor, Harry Rudd, was awakened by his wife, who had heard Catherine Edmonds shout to fire. He hurriedly dressed and stepped outside. Dr. Edmund was moving toward the fire, but very cautiously, while his wife at the house was cautioning him not to go, that it was too dangerous. Rudd hurried to his side, and the two men approached what appeared to be trash that had been a set aflame. From a cistern outside, they filled two pails with water and threw it on the fire, extinguishing it. That's when Harry Rudd exclaimed that he thought the object on the ground wasn't trash, but a man. By now, a few other neighbors had wandered over to the site to see what was going on, and their lanterns illuminated the dark, moonless night. For the first time, they could see it wasn't a man. It was a woman. It was Olive Peeney. Ollie had one foot on the step that led to the rear door of the building. The other foot was on the frozen ground. She was wearing her rubbers. The authorities were called. In Bowling Green, about seven miles away, Wood County Coroner E.P. Thomas received a telegram about the incident. He and Sheriff Detective Alf Farmer jumped on a railway handcar and pumped themselves to the scene. They arrived at 1 a.m. The coroner had Olive's body taken to her own home, where he conducted a post-mortem exam. She was fully dressed, including her winter wrap fastened at the neck. She had with her several handkerchiefs and a vial of pills with Dr. Edmund's name on them. Coroner Thomas determined she had been killed by a single shot from a 32 caliber gun. He retrieved the slug. The bullet had entered her throat just above the sternum and went downward into her heart. She might have lived three or four minutes, but she would have been unconscious within seconds of being shot. Given the direction of the bullet, it appeared that her killer had been standing above her and so close that when the gun was discharged, it left bad powder burns on Ollie's right hand and wrist which it seems she had instinctively raised to ward off the shot. The fire was the woman's dress and cape burning around her throat. Sheriff Deputy Farmer conducted an experiment and found he could set the garment on fire by shooting it from a distance of eight inches, solving the mystery of the flame's origin. The morning after Ollie's murder, the Daily Sentinel said, the unfortunate woman's presence in that locality, 
the reason for her absence from home. The motive for the deed are all shrouded in the deepest mystery, which even time and the most searching inquiry may never clear up. I can't imagine why the report sounded so pessimistic. It had only been 24 hours since the killing, and yet it would turn out to be prophetic. Over the next three days, the coroner and sheriff conducted interviews of all the witnesses. Dr. Edmund said he had last seen Ollie the afternoon of the day she was killed. He talked about hearing the gunshot, hurrying home, confirming the sound with his servant girl, then calling to his neighbor to go with him to inspect the scene. He said he had treated Olive Peeney for her heart ailments for the past decade, all the time he had known her, but never knew her to come to his office by the back door. The servant girl, Nellie Hartzing, confirmed the account. So, too, did the neighbor, Harry Rudd. Another neighbor, R.J. Collins, shared the account of how he and Dr. Edmund had gone to notify Pete Peeney of his wife's death. After seeing it was Olive, the two of them went to the Peeney house. When the doorbell and their knocks went unanswered, they entered the front door, which was not locked. They went to Olive's bedroom on the first floor and saw the blanket had been turned back and the pillow had an indentation as if a head had lain there recently. They continued to call for Pete, but there was no answer. Then they saw his trousers, socks, and other clothing laid out around the stove, which suggested to them that he was home and had retired for the night. They knew Pete Penny was hard of hearing, so they went upstairs and found him asleep in his separate bedroom. It took some rousting to get him to wake, Collins said. The men asked if Pete knew where his wife was. Downstairs in her own bed, he said. They told him she wasn't there and that a woman had been murdered and it might be Ollie. He needed to come have a look. And so Dr. Edmonds and Mr. Collins walked Pete Peony to the scene of the crime where he positively identified his wife. Pete put a hand on his wife's cold forehead. Is she dead, Doc? He asked. She is, Dr. Edmonds said. In other testimony, George Matthews, who lived across the street from the Peonies, mentioned Olive's well-known heart problems and how he had seen her often going to the doctors both day and night, sometimes in great distress. But he commented that her path to the doctor's office didn't make sense. She could have simply gone to the front door. To get to the rear where she was found, she would have had to travel past the drugstore entrance, past the office entrance, even past the doctor's house. It was all surrounded by a picket fence. She then would have had to open the fence gate, which was generally closed by 5 p.m. each night, to reach the back of the little complex. Neighbor Sam Irwin also confirmed Olive's heart problems. He said Pete gives him a shave every Saturday night, and the previous Saturday, he'd seen Ollie have two spells in the time he was there. As for the grieving husband, Pete confirmed he had been awakened by Collins and Dr. Edmonds. 
He said he and his wife had been maintaining separate sleeping rooms for a couple of years because he had a sinus illness that made him a loud, restless sleeper. He said he and his wife had dinner at the usual time, but he thought she seemed uneasy and not her usual cheerful self. She mentioned a neighbor was coming over to play cards with her, and so he went off to bed as normal around 8.30 p.m. It was the last time he'd seen his wife. Two neighbors volunteered that they thought Pete Peeney was the jealous type. C.H. Hollis and Wesley Arnold both voiced that idea. Arnold even said the previous week he had heard a pistol shot about midnight, looked outside, and noticed the light was on at the Peeney house, for whatever that was worth. Well, police thought it was worth something, because five days after Olive's death, her husband was arrested, and Sheriff Thomas Biggs indicated they might have even found the murder weapon. Authorities had served search warrants not only on the Peeney house, but the house next door, which belonged to the Arnold family, and that's where they found a thirty-two caliber revolver in a second-floor dresser drawer. When deputies questioned the homeowner about that gun, the lady of the house broke into tears and gave this story. A Mrs. Garrett from Toledo had brought the revolver over to her house on Saturday, the night after Olive's murder, and, against her wishes, put it in the drawer where it was found. Then Mrs. Garrett donned her wraps and hat and left for her home in Toledo on the next train. We'll talk about a break in the case. Alas, the story only held up for a few hours. Turns out, Mrs. Garrett was the half-sister of Olive Peeney. After hearing about the murder, she and her husband, Will Garrett, jumped on a midnight train from Toledo to Tautogany. Will Garrett was the foreman of a sash and blind company and often carried up to $700 at a time to make payroll, so he always carried a gun. When they arrived in Tontogany and learned Olive had been murdered with a gun of the same caliber, Mrs. Garrett was so nervous she took the gun from her husband and pleaded with the neighbor to hide it. It only took a simple check by deputies to see that the weapon that they had found had never been fired. The case against Pete Peony fell apart in a single day, and he was released from custody. But before night fell, his jail cell was filled with two more suspects. Authorities brought in Dr. Edmund and his servant girl, Nellie Hartzing. It wasn't made clear what evidence authorities had against either, and the very next day, Dr. Edmund, represented by a very skilled attorney in F.A. Baldwin, was released. Nellie Hartzing spent another night in jail, and in the morning was arraigned alone for the murder of Olive Peeney. Nellie was 25, a tall, slender, dark-haired girl with a trim figure and a quiet demeanor. Her father and her 35-year-old brother, Kidder, were in court with her, as well as the attorney Dr. Edmund had obtained, F.A. Baldwin. Somehow, a rumor had gotten started that young Nellie might have been having an affair with Dr. Edmund, and that Olive Peeney was probably also sleeping with Dr. Edmund. 
and that the younger Nellie likely saw Olive as competition and offed her so she could have the doctor to herself. Well, except for the fact that the doctor had a wife. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Anyway, a day later, Nellie Hartzing was released. The prosecutor said there was just no evidence to hold her and noted she had impeachable character witnesses. So, in review, it's been just 10 days, and already three different people have been arrested for Olive's murder and each released in turn. The investigation continued, and on April the 3rd, the Wood County Commissioners offered a $500 reward for information. By this time, Olive's dad, Henry Burnthistle, had hired a private detective, and Dr. Edmund hired one too, a man from Saginaw, Michigan. The Saginaw detective announced he had sufficient clues to name a killer, and that the killer was a woman but he wasn't going to utter her name unless the reward was increased. Wood County Sheriff Briggs brought in extra help as well. He was joined by a detective from Toledo, Del Hall, and a detective Hemphill from Finley. And after a few more weeks, on May the 23rd, Briggs said they had sufficient evidence to bring to a grand jury. On June 6, the grand jury returned indictments for Dr. Adam Edmond and his wife. They were each charged with first-degree murder. Biggs and Hemphill and Deputy Farmer broke the news to the couple by traveling to their home late in the evening. Mrs. Edmond was already in bed for the night when they served their warrants. The newspaper reported she took it very calmly, but the doctor was visibly affected. The couple was separated into two cells and not permitted to see each other before their separate trials. The doctor's trial was scheduled first and opened on July 9 before Judge Melhorn. Dr. Edmund was represented by Frank Baldwin and R.S. Parker. Seated with them at the defendant's table was Captain Luther Black, the brother of Mrs. Edmund and a highly respected Civil War veteran. Seemingly, they thought his presence gave them some clout. At the state's table was prosecuting attorney A.B. Murphy and his aides, J.O. Troop and E.T. Dunn of Findlay. The trial lasted for 10 days before a packed gallery, primarily filled with women. It was said the entire village had postponed Monday's traditional wash day because the women wanted to be at the courthouse. And the Daily Sentinel covered every moment of the trial, every witness, every cross-examination, and the debate that took place for every objection. The state's entire case was not only circumstantial, but appeared to rely on hints of rumor and innuendo. They made an effort.
effort to suggest Dr. Edmonds' relationship with Olive was unnaturally close since she had visited his office at times late at night. They tried to make the point that Olive couldn't have entered the rear of his property by passing his drugstore, his office, and his home and entering surreptitiously because there were no tracks on the ground. She must have gone in through the front door and exited the back, which means Dr. Edmund would have seen her. Other testimony, however, suggested the ground was frozen and wouldn't have shown footprints leading to the crime scene. They also put on the stand numerous witnesses to talk about knowing that Dr. Edmund had at least two guns, though the state couldn't prove that either of the guns, neither of which, by the way, were a thirty-two caliber, had killed Olive Peony. In closing arguments, the state said she went to the defendant's store for what purpose God only knows. It was a time of night when honest people ought to be in bed. The argument continued that Dr. Edmund must be guilty because by process of elimination, there was no one else around. That she had to enter his drugstore because there were no footprints in the backyard. That while they couldn't offer a motive, There is a weakness in human nature. Assistant Prosecutor Trope said, You don't need to be told there were improper relations between Mrs. Peony and Dr. Edmonds. You know that beyond a doubt you know it. And when two married people enter in such relations, there will follow, sooner or later, serious troubles and oftentimes murder. Well, the defense, for its part, seemed so undisturbed by the state's case, they didn't call a single witness and went straight to closing arguments, pointing out the lack of a murder weapon, the lack of a motive, and that not a single witness called by the state had testified to any inappropriate behavior between Dr. Edmonds and Olive. The trial ended on July 18. When the jury adjourned, everyone took their leave of the courthouse, assuming it would be a while. But just an hour later, the courthouse bell rang and everyone quickly returned. The verdict was in. Jury foreman Conrad Cole announced it. Not guilty. The audience applauded. The prosecutor then announced he would drop the charges against Mrs. Catherine Edmund, since her case was even weaker. She was reunited with her husband for the first time in more than six weeks. So, who killed Olive? All that remained were whispered rumors. The idea that Dr. Edmund and Olive Peony were involved in some kind of love triangle persisted for years. But life went on in Tautogany. The Edmonds and Pete Peony stayed right where they were. Pete Peony died in 1906. Catherine Edmond in 1911. Dr. Edmond maintained his practice and even continued serving as mayor. He remarried after Catherine's death to her cousin, Phoebe Wood, but died himself in 1914 at the age of 66 from blood poisoning caused by an infection. The Peonies and the Edmonds are all buried at the Tautogany Cemetery, 
less than 40 feet from each other. There was one final twist in this story. It came in 1954. A man named Ralph Wires, who had acquired the building where Dr. Edmund once owned his drugstore, was doing some work when he tore down a wall and found an old rusty revolver with four rusty bullets still inside. I couldn't find any story confirming whether it was a 32 caliber, but the discovery certainly raised eyebrows. Well, that's our story for tonight. I want to give credit here to Dick Martin and the Wood County District Public Library, who compiled all the newspaper clips and other writings on this case into a special collection at ohiomemory.org. Their efforts to have it all in one place saved us an enormous amount of research time. Well, Steve, what do you think? Well, do we know what Pete Peeney thought of all of this? Did he think Dr. Edmund was guilty? Well, the newspaper said one of the assistant prosecutors was being paid for by Olive's father and suggested that Pete Peeney supported it. So that would suggest Pete, at the very least, wanted the case to go to trial to see where it would lead. Also, I know the defense was not kind to Pete Peeney. In their closing arguments, they talked about how cold he was throughout their investigation and how he didn't appear to show any warmth or love toward his deceased wife. The defense also tried to shame Olive's father for hiring the extra prosecuting attorney, saying, how dare he pay for a man to slander his daughter and impugn her reputation as a strumpet when not a single Tautogany resident had said any such thing. So it's probably fair to say that while they both stayed in town after the trial, Dr. Edmund was probably not waking Pete up in the middle of the night to ask for a shave anymore. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I would assume Pete probably found himself a new family physician. <laughs> for sure. All right, well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Weston Skaggs lives in the Wayne County village of Creston. Do you know what that makes him, Steve? No, what? Weston from Creston. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he lives there with his wife and three kids. He's a singer-songwriter, a registered nurse, and a pastor at his local church where he leads the music. He calls his style folk gospel with an experimental side to it. And he likes writing about life as much as songs for church settings. The song we're featuring tonight is off his fourth studio album, written as a personal benediction of sorts for a friend of his who lives several states away and was going through a dark time. So find Weston Skaggs on all the streaming sites and social media, and we'll leave you with the full version of the song he shared with us tonight. Well, let's have another listen to Till I See You Again by Weston Skaggs, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Spirit rest, rest by the banks, the water still, and may your cup pour over the brim with grace. May you inhale.
Ryan, I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.